Morning, everyone. Um, my name is Dan Mike, and I've been asked to share the sermon this morning. Uh, I've prepared some thoughts and challenges for you, hopefully, ultimately, be encouraging. You can take the gospel into your sphere of influence, uh, wherever you may be going this week. Um, as a community, we've been studying, thinking through some things that Jesus said in the Gospel of John. Um, so if you turn, if you have a Bible, you want to read along with me, I'm going to be reading kind of a longer portion today, so uh, just rest up right now for a second in your seats, if you're going to stand with me in a sec. Uh, okay, in, never mind. Um, but more importantly, while you're turning there, I have an important question to ask you. How was Fat Tuesday? Punchki. No one knows how to spell it. It doesn't matter how to spell it. It matters what it tastes like. I have a theory going that uh, everybody who gives up sugar for Lent actually makes the decision after they've eaten three punchkis. And they're doing the math and they're thinking, okay, I can, I can go without sugar. I just ate a month's worth of sugar. Okay, whatever, maybe a year's worth uh, for some of us. But Fat Tuesday means... Ash Wednesday, Ash Wednesday means Lent. The Lenten season is upon us, or what I like to call the lazy man's New Year's resolution. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't grow up following or observing Lent, and I, I, I'm jealous for people who have been raised in this tradition. It's, the Lenten season is a liturgical move to, toward the cross. And the purpose of it is to strengthen things that are weak and weaken things that are strong. There are some things that have, been, that have become strong in our hearts and in our lives, some patterns or habits or things that we're going to that need to be weakened and hopefully in, replaced with strength in our orientation towards the cross and in our affection for the Lord. And, uh, and that takes work. It takes intentionality. It's more than just not eating chocolate. The fast the Lord desires for us to take is one that benefits the world. Isaiah 58 is very clear about. This is the fast I have chosen for you. Not, is it not one for you to, to go out of your way to release the bonds of the oppressed, to release the cords of those who are in, uh, in, in injustice, to, to give your bread to the poor? That's why we're not eating to trade it for something for somebody else to have it, to, to take your clothes and give them to someone who's naked. Our Lent is not just about us. It's about the world. It's for the sake of the world. And I am suspicious, and this is just me. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, okay? This is just something I'm thinking about. In other holidays, there seems to be somewhat of a cultural nod every once in a while. There's some, you know, Christmas is kind of an intersection of secular and sacred. And uh, it's kind of easier to celebrate Christmas as everybody's festive. We got our songs, we got our lights, we got our presents, we got our Santa, we got all this stuff, right? When it comes to the Lent season and the Passion Week and Good Friday, I feel like it just gets very quiet out there. And I don't think, I'm not, I'm suspicious. I don't think it's quiet out of respect, I think that there's powers and principalities at play that do not want the world looking at the cross. I think that the, the, the world itself doesn't want to see sin, doesn't want to see the suffering Messiah. They don't want to see Jesus displaying his love for them or, or there's something that's going on here and it's, gonna t it's gotta start with us orienting our lives around this. They're not gonna help us and maybe they shouldn't. 
We, we are the ones that are supposed to display the crucified Christ to them. So I, wanted, I want to call you up to take Lent seriously, to, to evaluate yourself, to confront patterns and habits and comforts and things that, uh, that we give ourselves to. And let that confrontation be violent. Let it be something that means something to you. Rant over. All right, confrontation uh, is something that's just on my mind because of this specific passage. It's an understatement. 10 different confrontations uh, are just being flung back and forth. And uh, just a comment on that before I read it. It's just, to me, notable and worth saying, I love it when stories of the Bible are, are just not so distant from my regular life. This argument that happens here sounds a lot like arguments I have with my friends. Just lobbing grenades back and forth and things just are being brought up and laid down and things are going all kind of backwards. And, I, and Jesus is wanting to engage with people who are in a real situation, in real places, and have real darkness, covering up real things in their life. And so before I get too into it. I'm going to invite you to read this with me. If you're unable to stand for this whole reading, I'm going to read like 40 verses, so I get it. Um, but please stand with me for the reading if you're able to. Uh, John chapter 8. <coughs> I'm going to start at verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Pharisee challenged him, said, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. He answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from, I know where I'm going, and you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on nobody, but if I do, I stand with the Father who sent me, because I'm not alone. In your law, it is written, the testimony of two witnesses is true. Well, I'm the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the father who sent me. And they asked him, where is your father? You don't know my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words in the teaching of the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Nobody seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away. You're gonna look for me. You're going to die in your sin, and where I go, you cannot come. The Jews asked, was he going to kill himself? This is why he says, where I go, you cannot come, but he continued. You're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sin if you didn't believe that I am, that he, this he is added here, that I am. You will indeed die in your sin. Who are you, they asked. Jesus, just, just what I have been telling you from the beginning Jesus replied, I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They understand he was talking about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, you will know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And as he spoke, many put their faith in him. Please continue to do that, Jesus. To the Jews who have believed him, he said, it's a little farther, if you hold my teaching, 
You're really my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's offspring. We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we, we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I say unto you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave has no permanent place in his family, but a son belongs forever. Now if the capital S, son, sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you have been looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you're doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham's our father. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me. A man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the works of your father. We're not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to him, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what, hears what God says. And the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. And the Jews answered him, have we not done well then by saying that you are a Samaritan with demon, a demon-possessed Samaritan? I'm not, a demon. I'm not possessed by a demon, Jesus said. I honor my father. You dishonor me. I'm not seeking my own glory, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I say unto you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died. So did the prophets. Did you say whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Are you greater than Abraham. He died, so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim to be your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I didn't, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not 50 years old, they said, and you have seen Abraham? Amen, amen. Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Amen. Jesus doing his ninja moves again. <laughs> slipping away. He's so sneaky. Um. I'm going to start with a little bit of a textual context and then cultural context. Parachuting in on passage isn't really fair to the author. He's trying to do something very well written. I really appreciate John's uh, writing style. Like I always say, this is the fourth gospel, not just the fourth gospel. This is a very creative work. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, I am a four-wing four. And <laughs> this, uh, this, this book, it completes me. Um, so 
for example, where are, where are we geographically even? Brandon shared last week of chapter six. Chapter six, that's in the, the, the northern part of Israel, up by the Sea of Galilee. That's where they were doing the bread talk. They're dealing with their own uh, issues up there, talking through their own problems. But seven, eight, nine, and 10, Jesus is dealing with people in Jerusalem. Totally different group of people who have, uh, I mean, he's speaking to elite priests. He's speaking to blind paupers. He's, he's got all kinds of things. And John is weaving all these themes together to show the blindness exists and more. And this is a person and all this stuff is happening uh, in Jerusalem. Why is Jesus in the great city of Jerusalem? There's two feasts going on in these four chapters. In 10, he is uh, celebrating the Feast of Hanukkah which you know is a dedication of the lights, the temple, remembering the Maccabean revolt. And the other feast is Sukkot. This is seven, eight, and nine. Sukkot, I just say, that's the Hebrew word. It's easier for me to say that word than tabernacles. <laughs> so that's why I say it. That's what it means in English, the booths, the feast of booths, the feast of tabernacles. Sukkah is a temporary structure that they would sleep in, even to this day. I don't know why we don't pick up on this. Love to be a part of a religion that is mandatory camping, you know? I mean, <laughs> family camp, right? I mean, when Chelsea and I lived in Israel for the fall season uh, for Sukkot, we, we stayed in a tent. Everybody did. I mean, it was awesome. And the reason is to remember the Moses and the children of Israel living in Sukkot, temporary dwellings in the wilderness. Remember, we studied no numbers uh, just a few months ago. All that stuff, we're trying to celebrate that season, that first season of liberty. Um, and so some of the big themes that happen culturally for them in their celebration of the feast, one would be water. As important as water was to uh, the people in the desert, they're trying to really connect with that importance in their celebration of the feast. So there's this daily thing during the seven-day feast <coughs> called the ceremony of water drying. Basically, from my research, this is what it looks like. The priest get everybody together in the Temple Mount. They'd start cheering and chanting and singing psalms like Psalm 118. Lord, save us. Lord, rescue us. Chant it. And they would get this picture, this ceremony picture, and they would walk down the street to the Pool of Siloam. They would take the water out, go up to the altar, and pour it on the horns of the altar. And then that moment would kick off party time, dancing, and all kinds of singing and praising and all that. On the seventh day, Hoshana Rabbah, the great day of the feast, they will go down seven times to the Pool of Siloam. And, uh, and some place that I was reading was saying that the, the six times they would not get water, they would just pretend to build anticipation. Is there gonna be water in the next, you know? Finally, the last one, the seventh time, they would pour water. It would, it's like the, the priest would hold his arm up and he would wait till everybody was in silence and pour the water before the beginning of this celebration. And I say all that because I'm thinking, when do you think Jesus said verse 37, chapter seven? When do you think he said it? Verse seven, seven, verse 37, you guys know this. On the greatest and last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and proclaimed in a loud voice, if anybody's thirsty, come to me for water. I'm gonna give you a fountain of living water coming out of your soul. 
Did he say it, you think, right? Because <laughs> I'm about to pour the water over the... I don't know, maybe. I mean, he's gutsy enough that he would do that. Well, however he did it, the priest, the staff of this whole temple, they were not happy with this. And they start figuring out, this guy's disrupting our stuff. Is he even legit? Where is he from? I don't think this is... We're gonna have to plot against him here. The next thing we see uh, is that italic section in chapter eight. Uh, italics in some of yours, bracketed in some of yours. Uh, you can see at the top of that the earliest manuscripts and, ever, and many other ancient witnesses don't have this part. Uh, so the smart people who are in charge of this stuff are saying that this might not have been a part of the original letter. I, however, might as well have been the person who added it because I'm a big fan of this story and I think it makes a lot of sense to put it where they put it. Whoever put it in there, it's... Uh, think about this. Part of their liturgy during Sukkot would be verses like and including John or Jeremiah 17, 13. Uh, this verse, the Lord is the hope. That's the Hebrew word tikvah normally, but in this sentence, it's the word mikvah. Okay, and I think I like that. It makes a lot of sense given the, the, the surrounding, um, the way this sounds. Okay, there's a mikvah. That mikvah is the washing, the ritual, ceremonially uh, cleaning process. The Lord is the mikvah of Israel. Everyone who forsakes him will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Okay, they're bringing this woman before the Lord. She's caught in adultery. They're trying to shame her. She's impure. She's unclean. We need the mikvah. What are you going to do, Jesus? Are we going to get her out of here? She's a poison to this community. We can't have any unholy people here. He starts writing in the dust. What's he writing? I don't know, but maybe their names. But they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. I mean, all of these themes are playing together at the same time in this story. Neither do I condemn you. I'm gonna wash, I mean, I love this story. But I only wanted to make just a short comment about it, so I promised myself to just let it go. Do with that what you will. As we're moving along through this story, we arrive at verse 12, where I started reading. And then Jesus stood up and said to them, I am the light of the world. Arbitrary, random, maybe, maybe not. Uh, there is uh, another thing I'd like to show you from the Mishnah, from the, from the Jewish Bible of how they were uh, a part of their process during Sukkot. Okay, just check this out. During the water ceremony of Sukkot, there were four golden lamps with four golden bowls, and on the top there's four ladders, uh, one for each lamp. 50 okay, 75 feet high, wicks made from old priestly <laughs> garments. This is big wicks, okay. Uh, spun up, tied together, four young priests who are not afraid of heights with jars will climb up the ladder, pour the oil into each bowl, light the lamps. And there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem which was not illuminated from the light of the house of the water drying. Just as important as water was to this ceremony as it was to the people in the wilderness, fire 
Remember, as they are about to cross the Red Sea, that, that fire that stood behind them in between Pharaoh and the children of Israel, that fire stayed with them all 40 years, whether it was on the mountain or whether it was in the middle of their camp, whether it was leading them or keeping them warm at night or giving them a cloud for shade by day. The fire is a part of this story, a big part of it. So they got these big fire lamps that they're using uh, to remember this and celebrate this. And Jesus knows a thing or two about that. You like this fire? I'm the, I'm the light. It's me. Gosh, he pleads with them throughout this whole chapter to take him, to take him for who he says he is. The reason why I bring a lot of this up is because I've noticed something notable in this chapter and, and throughout this kind of, seven, eight, nine thing. There's not a lot of confusion about what Jesus is saying. Other times there is. Let's be honest. Sometimes Jesus says something and everybody's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm the bread. <laughs> we saw that chapter. I'm the bread. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. They're like, okay, I was in. I was in when we had the bread. Now I'm out. That I'm out. No eating your flesh. I do not get this guy. Let's go home. Notice how in these stories, I am the, or you want some water, I'm the water. You want the light, I'm the light. It's just getting more and more clear and nobody's saying, what are you talking about? They're not saying, I don't understand. Even when he even gets more and more clear through the chapter. <laughs> I, if you believe in me, you're not gonna die. I, I mean, he, all these statements he's saying, they're not confused. When he says, before Abraham was, I am, there's no more clear sentence than this. And they get it. They just say, no, we do not want you to be that. We will not receive you as that. You are a heretic. How can this possibly be? You're not 50 years old. You don't know that. He, I mean, they're, they're fighting him but not because they're confused, because they refuse to believe this. They refuse to have him be for them who he said he's gonna be, who he's been saying he is from the beginning. So a simple seed I wanna sow right now is, we got a challenge here. It's very easy to just look at Jesus. It's very easy to look at this thing and say, you know what, you're taking things a little too far, Jesus, uh, to say, I, I'm actually not so sure that you know what you're talking about, Jesus. I'm not going to follow you in this. Um, I'm, I'm actually, I'm just, yeah. He cares a lot about what they're talking about is why Jesus normally doesn't take the bait. He normally doesn't argue with people. This is very important to him. He's pleading with them. I'm gonna set you free. It's gonna be better for you. So the first bit of drama here with them comes over this verse that Jesus said in chapter five. Chapter 531, Jesus says, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Okay, that is... Just a statement he made, and it generally applies to people who are going to court or speaking between men and women on, on, on a cultural basis. <laughs> of course, if I have something that we're arguing about, we need somebody to, to bring a witness in to kind of help corroborate whatever we're trying to do. And so that's true. 
They think they catch Jesus in this. They say, oh, you're, you're bearing witness about yourself, huh? I am the light of the world. I am the white. Oh, all of a sudden now you can just do this. We caught you, Jesus. They're trying to catch him. Not confused about what he was saying, confused about his, his authority or if he even is allowed to say it. He says to them, look, I'm not doing that. This is not, I'm, I'm not talking about stuff about this world. I'm not talking about earthly things. This is a different, I have a different rule applying here. And the rule that he is operating under when he makes a messianic claim about himself is this, the rule of the prophet. Jesus is a prophet. He is making a statement. Like when he says things like, I only say what, what God tells me to say, that is a dead giveaway for what a prophet is. Prophets don't have a witness. They just either are right or they're wrong. The test of a prophet is if it comes true. And if it comes true, they're legit. If it doesn't, they're a false prophet. That's how it works. We're talking about prophecy. I thought prophecy was just knowing secrets about somebody, you know, and then telling them that. And then and they're like, whoa, how'd you know? That's what I used to think anyways. <coughs> Back when we were studying Revelation, the book of Revelation is prophecy. And I was struck by this verse in chapter 19, verse 10, where the messenger, John, I mean, he's overwhelmed by everything. He turns to the angel and he starts to bow, starts to worship. And the angel's like, what are you doing? Okay, Revelation 19, verse 10, he says, I am a servant just like you. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. This is not my testimony. This is not about me. What are you doing? The spirit of prophecy is to testify of the story of, of who Jesus is. That makes a lot of sense as to why St. Paul would say things like, I aspire, I aspire to uh, the, the gift of prophecy, it's a high calling. If you want to prophesy, you want to be a prophet, that's what you need to do. You need to start talking to people about the testimony of Jesus Christ over their life. If you want to practice out me, you could call me up. You tell me, Dan, Jesus died for you. He's the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Dan. You can do better than this. He loves you. Why don't you love yourself? Speak the testimony of Jesus. That's what he's doing when he's making these claims about himself. And that's why they're getting confused a little bit as to the rules of this. But he's speaking as a prophet. And he thinks that people, I think everybody needs to hear this, the prophetic word of the testimony of Jesus. So that's a drama. And as he kind of just presents that, people buy it. By verse 30, they're like, okay. We're into it. Many people put their faith in him. Verse 31, Jesus pushes it a little bit farther. You can see him say, okay, if you, if you abide in my word, uh, my, my, you are my disciple, and you're gonna know the truth, and the truth is gonna set you free. And then they respond to him by saying, what? We're Abraham's offspring. We've never been slave to anybody. We're talking about freedom. Anybody feel like there's a little curious response here? I mean, he just said, okay, stick with it. Stick with my word. Hide it in your heart. It's going to be leading you to the truth. And that's going to lead you to more, a greater degree of freedom. It's going to be great. Let's go. And then they say to him, whoa, 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 whoa. We're Abraham's offspring. We're not slave. We're just slave to Abraham. We're talking about freedom. 
And then I'm reading this, I'm like thinking, Jesus must be scratching his head here. Who could ever even say this sentence? I mean, do they know anything about the history of Abraham's offspring? I mean, God said to Abraham, you're gonna be a blessing, everybody's gonna love it, and also, you're gonna be slaves. Like right away, in three generations, they become, they're in Egypt, and they're slaves. They're celebrating the first season of liberty from slavery while they're talking. Not to mention the Babylonian exile where they were captives in Babylon. Not to mention their Roman occupation right now as kind of this vassal, glorified vassal state that's not exactly free. What are you talking about? It's just not true. Ironic, right after he said, you guys are gonna have the truth. They tell him just a lie. They're lying to themselves. What are they talking about? Well, I'm gonna give you the DSV version, the Dan Standard version of this. Uh, seems to me like it would be easy to say this sentence. Do I look like I need your freedom? Do I look like I need your truth? It's an ethnic remark, it's a race, okay, I'm the child, I'm Abraham's child, I don't need your freedom. I'm chosen. I wish that I didn't know this so well. Maybe you don't know this, but my grandfather is a cop, <coughs> sergeant in the state police, my dad is a preacher and a chaplain for the state police, and my mom is a teacher the school that I went to. I know how to hide everything. <laughs> Sorry, mom, if you're listening to this. Turn the mic off for a sec. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know what? Of course I have to. You're, the, you're Sergeant Thompson's grandson. You don't break the law. You don't do anything wrong. You're not out shenanigans at night with people doing all that stuff. No, of course not. Of course, I never cut corners academically or cheat or do anything. I have no trouble learning at all. My mom's a teacher, for goodness sake. I'm so blessed to have this teacher in my house. My dad's a pastor. I don't sin. I don't have any problems with sin. I never done anything wrong like that. Of course, I'm good. I'm shiny. I'm tidy. I'm awesome. Can't tell you how many times I felt like I gotta go down to the altar right now. It's me they're calling. My heart's beating out of my chest and I can't do it. I'm too, I, it's pride. It's not anybody's fault but me, I just can't. Our world doesn't need another Christian saying I have no problems. I'm shiny, come into this church and see everyone with no problems. Look at us, I don't need your freedom, look at me. Our world doesn't need another shiny exterior that we see on Instagram or Facebook or social media, all the filters, all the pictures. Look at me, I don't have any problems. Look at me. We settle for external tidiness. But Jesus wants to take it way farther than that. What does he say to them? No, 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 no. It's, you can still be a slave. Anybody who's sin is a slave to sin. I want to talk about what's inside. Don't talk to me about what's outside. I don't care about what's outside. I want freedom on the inside. Don't settle for some sort of external life that's contradictory to what's going on inside. Don't settle for a life that's not true and telling yourself a lie. 
Jesus says the truth is going to set you free from that bondage. Walk into the light. It's like this uh, exercise we do in the young adult ministry called the reverse testimony. We did this last month, and it's where we invite people to share stories about how they did like the wrong thing. And um, it just gives so much solidarity because, uh, you know what, sometimes it's just hard to hear the good stories all the time, you know? No offense, Missy and Jeremy and all that. We love you. <laughs> but uh, no, <laughs> even Missy's story last month where she said, I, I was struggling, is very helpful. Uh, the, one of the stories that was shared last month in our anti or reverse testimony um, uh, exercise was this guy, he, he knew that he was supposed to pray for someone. He knew it. He said he felt like, I gotta pray for this guy for healing. I, you know, and, and he just, he built it up. He built it up and he's like, then I didn't do it. I chickened out, I walked away. And I promise you, there's so many people who were just like such a sigh of relief in the room. And then he was able to say, but the Lord met me in my failure. He met me in my uh, shame. He met me and has raised me out of that, has forgiven me, has taught me about who I really am. And I think once we step into the light, this will be our experience. If you, in humility, do step into the light. Light of the world wants to shine uh, his light on you. And part of that is that it's going to expose things that darkness is trying to hide. But his light is not a light that is gonna make you feel guilty. His light is not a light that's there to condemn you. It's not gonna be something that's gonna make you feel demeaned. It's something that is going to raise up your chin and tell you the truth about who you are and say you're not a slave that doesn't belong here. You belong here. You're a son. You're in an elevated position in this patriarchal society. You are a son. That's good news. I want to hear him say that. Open your heart up to the truth, and the truth will set you free. Walk in that freedom. He's begging us to let him be that, and maybe that's something we need to think about during Lent. There is a dual standard going. Is there a shiny outside, but a, it's, it's like a whitewashed tomb, death inside, darkness inside, Maybe you do your part this month. Maybe you say, I'm gonna give up certain things that are strong in my life because I'm weak in this area. And then you ask Jesus, be for me who you said you're gonna be. Be for me the freedom that you promised. Be for me the word of freedom. And, and tell me who I really am. Tell me I'm a son and not a slave. Anybody here need to hear that? Continuing on in my wild generalizations over this very complicated chapter, um, I have another kind of thought to develop, which comes from all of the sounds that he's making at the end of this chapter, where he's talking about um, your father's the devil, or where he's talking, you know, where they're, where they're, I mean, this is getting very, very intense. I mean, some of the stuff they're saying to him, it's just like lobbing grenades here. Listen to what they say. You're a demon-possessed Samaritan. <laughs> I try to look up, is there an ancient, you know, Samaritan belief about any of this? No, it's just a really mean thing to say. It's a mean thing they can say. Where is your father? We're not illegitimate children. That's a very uh, kind way of translating what they're calling him. Someone who has kind of a... Uh, uh, 
a birth story that's a little scandalous in a society that really cares about your father. We don't know who your father is. Where is he? We are not illegitimate children. Who do you think you are? He doesn't take the bait. He actually speaks into it. And he, he, if he's shining the light on the inside of their heart in that first kind of thought for the sin and trying to get them free from that, then I think in the second part, it's like he's shining a light on their actual path, their pattern of life. He says to them, look, I can tell where your loyalty is by the way that you live your life. If you, if you were Abraham's offspring, you'd do what he was doing. You're not doing what he's doing. If your father was my father, we'd be on the same team. We're not even speaking the same language. You can't hear anything I'm saying. You're talking about, I can see the, who, who you serve uh, by the way you're living your life. You're doing the bidding of your father. He says that like three times, the devil. You're doing what he wants you to do. I think Lent is a perfect time to be talking about our patterns and paths of life and who we're lining up with. I mean, can you just confront yourself? I'm not trying to threaten you, okay? Can you, can you confront yourself and say, is there anything in my life as a one-to-one, uh, this is the gospel, this is what I believe, and I'm not just saying it because this is, this is a thing that I do. This is a part of my life. This is an intentionality that I have that, that coincides with that reality. Can someone tell your loyalty is to the gospel by the way you live your life? Or is it just things that we say? My father is God. Uh, I can tell that it's not. Reminds me of me. I, um, I wonder, uh, you know, if you, if you start to feel like right now, yeah, evaluating my life, I can't make t- tons of one-to-one connections. Dan, it's just too confusing. I can't figure out how to live a Christian life in 2019. Jesus didn't know what we're going through. I feel that. That's my own response to myself. I don't know what bathroom to go into in Target anymore. I don't know what to do in this. I, it's confusing. I don't know. And I, what does he want me to do? What does he want me to live like? How does he want me to sound? I mean, it's, it's complicated. One thing I was thinking about is this thing called the Mimic Study. If you ever heard of it or read of it, that's, okay, whatever, you can look it up. Mimic Study, last year I read about this in, uh, it's a U of M thing, where they asked all these couples who were married to present two pictures of each one of them, okay? But you have to be married for 20 years, at least. One picture is of you right before you got married, and the other picture is of you after your 20 year. Both of them had to, you know, and then they, they did it with like 30 couples, put them all on a table and mixed up all the pictures. And they filed in the students and they're like, try and pick out who's married. Um, there was no repeatable process that they could say if they started with the pictures of them as young to figure out who was married. But nine out of 10, if they started with the pictures of them in old, after 20 years, they could get it. Who is married? I'm not saying who is married to who or whom because I don't know if I should say who or whom. Okay, so I'm just saying who is married. All right, sorry. (laughs) I just thought this sounds a little weird. I'm not, okay, all right. You know the end of that sentence if you're smart. Whom? Who is married to whom? 
And they can do it. My point is they can do it. The theory is this, that if they're looking at each other through the years and they're empathizing or they're sharing emotions with one another during uh, crying or during laughing, that you're, uh, in your, as you're adoring the person that you're looking at the most, your subconsciously, your, your facial muscles start to actually mimic and mirror one another, even to the point where you're start, it's actually starting to happen and your wrinkle patterns are actually starting to come in the same places and they're, they've been just looking at each other for so long. It's, what's funny? <laughs> I know it's funny because my wife has a, has a straight smile. I have a crooked smile and I'm hoping that in 20 years or so it straightens. <laughs> it's the muscles. <laughs> I don't know, if this study's true, we're all gonna look like iPhones in 20 years or something like that. Anyways, like, uh, <laughs> what if I told you that there, that there was a God who said, I'm not gonna make it hard for you to look at me. I'm the light. What if I told you that there's a God who says, say to this every time you gather, I'm gonna make my face shine on you. I'm gonna make my face in your direction. I want you to look up and see me, see my countenance. And the more we fix our eyes on Christ and the more we put our affections there, that that's gonna actually start to do something and change the way we look and change the way that we act. Too many times do, do we just tell ourselves, I'm never going to change. I'm never going to get better. I'm not growing. I'm not getting better. That's not true. The more you, you set your affections on Christ, you will start to imitate him. Maybe, maybe you can say like Apostle Paul, did I already say this verse? I've said this sermon three times. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives. Remember the next verse, who has bewitched you? Jesus was crucified before your very eyes. Were the Galatians at the crucifixion? What were they doing there? No, I don't think they're there. I think that Paul says, good enough, you've seen me. I think we can represent Christ, and I think we can ask ourselves this really hard question. This is what I'm gonna end with. Ask yourself this hard question. More and more each day is my life surrendering to the 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 lordship of Jesus. More and more each day, am I setting my gaze on the cross and is my life becoming more and more uh, mimicking the self-sacrifice of Jesus, mimicking and mirroring who he is? Or could Jesus look at me and say, I know who your father is by the way that you're treating me, by the way that you're acting. I can see that you're on a path uh, supporting the father of lies. And I do that. I can't. I've done that. That is a path we can take. The father of lies has a lot of words he wants to share with our world. He's got a word for people. He's got a word for people and how to, and, and, and about our sexuality. He's got a word he's trying to tell poor people about their self-worth and their value. He's got a word that he wants to speak to people who are in sex trafficking, who are paying for sex trafficking, who are being paid for. He's got a word to tell them. Who's gonna, who's gonna speak a word against that? <coughs> That's the movement of antichrist. That is the movement following the father of lies and he's gonna continue to lie. He speaks, his, he speaks fluent lie and I join him every single time. I refuse to forgive somebody. 
Every single time I decide not to love my enemy and somebody who doesn't deserve it, every single time I, 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 I don't stick my hand out to the poor and, and, and raise them up and tell them who they're, every time I contribute to the cause that is anti-Christ. And giving up chocolate for Lent's not gonna fix that. Maybe, maybe it will. But sometimes I think that our problem is not that we uh, take ourselves too seriously. I know we say that a lot in this church. I think sometimes our problem is we don't take ourselves seriously enough. We don't take the gospel seriously enough. The gospel, Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 12, is violent. It's violent, and violent men lay a hold of it. And sometimes I think we're not violent enough. Mother Teresa was violent in her pacifism. She disrupted. She disrupted the caste system. MLK was violent in his pacifist. He was violent in his way of showing people that they have dignity and they are made in the image of God. Let your violence start to be aimed towards the path of the father of lies. Just with the same, the same tone that Jesus had when he's speaking out about this. He's not happy about it. Call it what it is. Where's your words? Where's your life? I have been standing before you next month, 12 years. I wanna tell you, I'm so proud of this group. I am. I'm so proud to see how many people are saying, you know what, I am on the right path. I am on a path. Uh, that, that speaks the word of resurrection to my uh, sphere of influence. I am on a path that has hope, that brings hope into the darkest places. I am uh, shining the light. And I want you to know that. I want you to see each other and champion each other. And so let's just end by uh, celebrating what each other are, are doing. And so if I call your name or if I call something that you know, uh, is true for you, then I wanna see you stand up and I want everybody to just cheer and applaud for you. Is anybody in here waking up every morning and going to a job uh, in the healthcare, uh, as a healthcare provider or, or, or a profession? Anybody here, doctor, nurse, or anybody? Uh, let's cheer for them. Keep clapping, keep standing. Are there any social workers? Stand up. Anybody who's a teacher, keep clapping, keep standing. Anybody who's a, a police officer, a fireman, an EMT, anybody who has given money to the cause of Christ uh, because you're a businessman and you're working hard, anybody who has prayed for somebody who is lost in this world, anybody who has ever forgiven someone who doesn't deserve it or, or who has acted in love towards somebody they didn't deserve, anybody who has ever felt like they need to share the gospel with somebody, is there anybody here who's ever been a part of the kingdom of God in your sphere of influence? Stand to your feet, cheer each other on. Let them hear you. Keep going. You are the light of the world. Christ is our champion. And you know what he says? You're the light of the world. And so what I say is this, let there be light. Let there be light in Grand Rapids, in all of your areas of influence. Let there be light and let that light shine out of your actual earthen vessel, out of your actual life. He has put that light inside of you. So we can say things like, 
I've been persecuted, but I'm not abandoned. Like I'm, I'm, cru- I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. I'm pr- crushed, I'm not perplexed. I'm not, I, I still will not lose heart because I carry in my life the light of Christ. I carry in my life, the, my body, the, the death of Christ so that the life might live on in me. That light that was spoken into the darkness let, is, is shining still to this day in the face of Christ in each and every one of us. He has put all of his reputation on you because he believes in you. He knows that you have what it takes to bring the light into wherever you are in this city. Let there be light.